Wow, you guys. Um, what a day we have in store. Like, this is a... Oh, nice, we got some, like... I could actually go with that. Just a soundtrack to my message. Like, let's just... just why not? Let's go for it. I love it. Oh, you guys. No, uh, we, we consider it a high honor and privilege. In fact, when I think about my life and where God has taken me, I just feel so fortunate that I get to lead this community and we get to open up the scriptures week after week and study, study his word. Um, I, I just, I can't go any further without saying happy Mother's Day to all of you amazing mothers in the room. Can we please give it up for our moms? My word. You know, um, the conversation of motherhood has been like thrust into the public discourse these last couple of weeks with current events and everything else. And um, there's all kinds of things that people may say about your job as a mother. I happen to think that if you are a mom, it is probably the most important thing that you will do is to guide and to parent your kids to know and love Jesus. And I know that I'm standing here in large part because of the concerted effort and years of prayer and diligence that my mom had um, in raising, raising me. And so I just want to applaud you and honor you for your incredible work. Your vocation to raise your kids is such an important one. And we value it. God values it. And um, we just can't say thank you. Can't say thank you enough. None of us would be here without our moms. And so thank you so, so much for how you have been faithfully stewarding your kiddos. And um, I just, I, I think about those of you who have, have many kids. We, we have two kids. We have Isabel and Judah. My wife uh, will be at the, the second gathering, but man, she is um, the absolute, uh, just, a, a, just an incredible and amazing mother. I'm so honored to be able to do life with her. Um, and those of you who are like, I'm seeing Natalie Larson in the back, who's got like five kids. Oh my gosh, what a, a challenge and a, a beautiful uh, thing that you've committed your life to, raising five children to love Jesus. We are so proud of you guys. Um, so with that, you guys, we are going to launch right in uh, to our series in uh, the letter to the Galatians. So will you please stand with me uh, for the reading of Scripture? So this is Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, kind of picking it up mid-thought, and I promise to go back and to explain if you haven't been here. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have the faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All of the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. So uh, one of our values here at Riverbend is uh, we want to learn the scriptures for all that they're worth, and we want to actually do what it says. And that's because we believe that the Bible is more than just an ancient spiritual text. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God, and we believe that he wrote it for you and I, and he gave us his heart so that we could live into his kingdom. And I genuinely believe that it's our joy to listen and obey God in all of life. In fact, I'm more convinced now than I've ever been that there is no better life out there for you and I than to love God with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength. And as you know, of course, like you're not gonna win any popularity contests in society holding that opinion, but you will become the kind of person that our society needs in order to heal and in order to trust in Jesus. I believe that if the church is going to regain its compelling voice in society and in Western culture, then we need a passionate and courageous orthodoxy to follow Jesus in all of life. And so what we're doing right now, studying the scriptures, um, I believe with all my heart, is a sacred practice that retrains our hearts and minds to listen and obey God instead of ourselves. 
which I believe is one of the principal temptations of the enemy, is for him to get you to trust yourself or in your own wisdom rather than in the wisdom of God. And so as a, this practice is about anchoring ourselves in the words of God and retraining our hearts to follow him. So here we go. This, this passage, the one that we just read, it sits inside a larger message where Paul is like developing several themes at once. So as I often remind you, I'm probably sounding like a broken record at this point, we need to understand the context of these verses before we try and apply them to our story and to our life. So here's the main thing, if you need a refresher. Paul is addressing his opponents who had persuaded the Galatians to drift away from the true gospel in favor of a gospel that involved like trusting in Jesus on the one hand, but then agree agreeing to their like personal narrative or their personal preferences on the other. Essentially what they were doing was changing the fundamentals to include their ideology instead of accepting everyone who trusts in Jesus. And Paul, through the letter to the Galatians, is saying, no way, no way is that happening on my watch. No one, including me, Paul says, gets to redefine gospel according to our preference. We don't get to do that. Jesus is king. So he gets to define gospel. He gets to define how you and I enter the kingdom of God, even when that means accepting someone who's profoundly different from me. Someone who's different from me, let's say, on vaccines or cultural heritage or the rule of law or politics or take your pick, fill in the blank, whatever issue, if it's secondary to the gospel, Jesus says your main priority then is to give yourself in familial devotion to other people who call Jesus king. And that, amen. And that's what Paul is essentially saying. Now in here in chapter three, he's developing that idea even further. Paul explains to the Galatians where their gospel drift is leading them. The vision that he cast in, when he planted the church in Galatia had drifted off of the true gospel. And he's saying to them in chapter 3, this is where your drift is taking you. If you keep going down this path, this is where you're going to end up. And if you're here last week, you remember that it leads to a version of Christianity where I'm basically at the center of it all and I'm trying to sort of perfect myself rather than relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember verse 3, it says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And I think Brooke did an amazing job last week teaching on this, talking about the temptation that you and I have to receive the miracle of God's forgiveness for salvation, but then quickly abandon it and try and become mature in Christ through some gospel of self-improvement. And that was such an important word for me to hear. Brooke, you were out for a second, but I was just complimenting your teaching, buddy. I thought you did an amazing job last week. Um, I'm prone to fall into that temptation myself. And, and by the way, I see it all over Christianity today. We try to grow uh, mature in our relationship to Jesus in our own strength rather than depending on and relying on the Spirit of God and the miracle of God. And in the end, what that leads to, Paul is saying, is that it leads to you being frustrated and tired and worn out but not truly transformed. If you're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus, if you're going to become like him and, and have the power to do the things that he did, both in character and in practice, if you're going to become like Jesus, then you need to rely and be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And he's saying there is a much, much better way. And that's what he kind of goes into through the rest of chapter 3 and into the end of the story. So this is where we're picking it up. We're picking it up on that, on that theme, so hold on to that theme. He's talking about you and I being reliant and dependent on the Spirit for true character formation. So he's, he's challenging us to stop drifting to a different gospel, which um, if I can just say anecdotally in our experience here in the sort of post-Christian, you know, 21st century, secular, Pacific Northwest, it's so easy for us to drift off of center and drift off of focus. It might not be in the same way that the first century drew, Jews had trouble accepting Gentiles and all of that, but there is a drift that happens. And so 
Paul and the writers of the New Testament are calling us to remain committed and stay focused on the true gospel where Jesus is on the throne and we're dependent on his spirit. And today's passage focuses on just one aspect of that lifestyle that uh, I believe the Lord is inviting us into today. And my job is to guide you deeper into faith today. And that's what we're talking about. Verse 6 says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what's going on here in this passage? Why are we all of a sudden talking about this guy, Abraham, who at the time when Paul is writing this had been dead for about 2,000 years? And what does it mean that faith was credited to him as righteousness? It sounds like a theologically technical term, and it kind of is. But for Paul, he has a very clear idea here. He's saying Abraham is the prime example the archetypal example of someone who is justified by faith, not by works of the law. Again, that's another sort of major motif of Galatians, that the gospel, again, is that Jesus is king. Whoever trusts in Jesus will be forgiven of sin, set free from the powers of evil and darkness, and will be accepted into the family of God. So requiring people to do the law, requiring people to follow the Jewish Torah, to, to, uh, to be circumcised and to eat kosher and all of that um, in order to belong to the family of God. That was an affront or that is an affront to the true gospel. He's saying, no, 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 remember, the people of God are marked out by faith. They're marked out by belief. And Abraham is the archetypal example of this. Going all the way back to his story in the book of Genesis is super important on this. He promises to bless Abraham. You're familiar with that story from Genesis chapter 12. God's original design for humanity to enjoy him in the garden and to partner with him in the flourishing of all creation had been hijacked or it had been disrupted by human rebellion. Often we call that in the world of theology the fall. And evil and death entered into the world and sort of splintered God's plan to cause all of us to flourish and to thrive. But because God is a God of redemption, he's not abandoning. And this is such a, a key and, and an important point. If you're going to understand the story of God at all, you're going to understand that in, in the face of evil and in the face of human rebellion, God does not reject or abandon his people. He's a God of redemption. And so he goes to the, 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 the he commits himself to making things right. And that's what God is up to in the story of the Bible. He promises to redeem the world. In Genesis chapter 12, this is how the scripture puts it. The redemption project begins. The redemption project begins. Here's how it begins. The Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then this is the final line of the initial promise. He says, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Okay, it's, it, this is known in the world of theology as the Abrahamic covenant. It is very hard to overstate how important this covenant is. This is known in the Bible as a covenant. For today, though, here's all that we need to know. All that we need to understand is this. When God begins the redemption project, he begins by choosing a family and promising to bless them. That's how God begins his redemption project. Choosing a family and then promising to bless them. He says, I'm choosing you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a rich inheritance. That would he, that's what he says, so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's, again, hard to overstate how important this is. I suppose that God could have chosen one of several thousand strategies that he could have come up with in his infinite wisdom in order to redeem the world. But the strategy that he chose, chooses to go with uh, which turns into this pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, I think it continues even to today, is God's pattern or his strategy to redeem is to choose a family and to bless them. When he wants to transform a city, like Ben, for example, he chooses a family like you and I, and then he, uh, he, he transforms us from the inside out. He blesses us. He calls us to serve him in his kingdom, and then he changes the world through family. 
And now that, that, that multi-ethnic, all the peoples of the earth family is coming together in Christ. And this is why family is so important to the heart of God. And that's why you should belong at Riverbend. You should belong in the family of believers. Not because my sermons are awesome. Hopefully they are okay, at least, passable. But the reason why you should belong here is because if you have trusted in Jesus, it means you have been called into the family of God so that you would be a blessing. And so we belong together, not as individuals like executing our own life plans, but coming together under the mission of God to redeem all things under him. And that's what we are being invited into. And that's why the family of God is so important. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I recommend you are here while you belong in a community, like I was saying before, is because family is at the center of God's plan to redeem the world. And when God chooses you, like he's done with you and I, he's not choosing us so that we feel morally superior to others who haven't bought into our version of spirituality. He hasn't called us to religious elitism, like, hey, we've got the answer and everyone else is wrong or whatever. He's choosing us so that we would be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's the whole point of God choosing Abraham is that he would be a blessing. He would serve. He would give. He would love the world. So we cannot miss that important thing because the way that God started his redemption project was choosing a family, and he continues to do that even to today. So how does Abraham respond? How does he respond to God's promise? That's, a, that's, a, that's an important question. Well, he, he responds uh, by believing God. And as I'm saying this, I'm like having a, like a realization that for many of us, we're like, okay, yeah, that was the answer I was expecting. But as we descend into Abraham's story, I just have to just challenge you to not assume that you know everything that God wants to speak to you today, but there's actually something here beneath the surface that God wants you to know. And we're going to talk about the quality and the determination of Abraham's faith, and that's what I want to talk to you about. So you're expecting that answer. Abraham believed God, but let's descend deeper into that. Uh, Abraham is saying, yeah, God, I, I want that. I want to be blessed. I want to be a, become a great nation. I want to inherit all of the promises that you've said you have for me. And then I want to be a blessing to the world. That's essentially what he says back to God in his answer. But if you look closely at Genesis chapter 12, you'll see that's not exactly how the scripture puts it right away anyways. Look at what, what verse 4 says. After God makes that promise, he says this. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. There's actually not a recorded statement from Abraham, but he just, he just gets up and he goes. His response is to move from the only home he's ever known for 75 years. At this point in Abraham's story, he's 75 years old. He lived in his hometown of a place called Ur his entire life. And then he hears God make a promise one day. A promise that he's going to bless the world through his family. And he goes, okay, I'll pack my stuff. Like, I'll, I'll, I will reorient my life. I will completely change my life plan, my life arc. I will completely change everything about my life based on that word and based on that promise. This is, by the way, the act of faith in the initial story of, of the Bible that sets off God's redemption project with his people. The response of, yeah, yeah, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll pack my stuff, I'm doing it. God, you promised to bless me, and I, I want you to bless me, and I'm willing to stake my whole life and livelihood on that promise. That's what true Abrahamic faith is like. Biblical faith is not at all passive. See, when we talk about faith, we've misunderstood it to be like a very sort of kind of a passive thing. That like the way that I've described it before is kind of like in America, the way that we describe faith, it's like checking the terms and conditions on like when you're creating an account or something like that. You're like buying a ticket to fly Delta. You're like, don't have a Delta account. And so you have to like create an account. And then at the end, you have to like check. Yes, I agree to the terms and conditions to the thing. And that's we've turned faith into that sort of passive agreement. 
But never in the Bible is that the implication about faith. Faith is, is being put into action. It's basically saying, you know what, God, you said this, and, and, and now my whole life is different as a result of it. I'm actually changing everything about my life based on your word. It's not passive at all. Dallas Willard writes, you've never seen people more active, more active than those who've been set on fire by God's grace. You've never seen people more active than those who've been set on fire by God's grace. So God is calling you to an active faith to stake your life on his promise for you. And then what happens next in the story, right? That's the, that's the question. What, what happens after, after Abraham's faith moment? The next day, he realizes all of the promises, right? He has a son, and he inherits the land and all of that. Not even close. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the promise takes years to unfold, years for God to fully fulfill. Actually, it's 25 years in total between when God first makes the promise and he has his son. This is remarkable. See, God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation, but he and his wife, Sarah, if you know their story, hadn't been able to have kids. So how are you going to become a great nation if you are infertile? You can't have kids. How are you going to become a great nation? God had all also promised that they would inherit this land that he calls the promised land. But at the time, it was already occupied by people who followed other gods. So let me ask you this. How do you inherit a land how, that God has promised you if there's already a civilization there who, by the way, have been known to uh, commit genocide for hundreds of years by this point? How, how are you going to inherit that land? How are you going to receive that promise? These are extremely important questions that Abraham did not have satisfactory answers for at the time. God hadn't laid out for him the exact plan of how he was going to do it. Abraham was operating on faith. He was operating on faith that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So by Genesis 15, this is a couple of years later, about 10 years later to be exact. Everyone's starting to wonder. See, Abraham had this little crew with him, a few uh, people who worked for him and things like that. And everyone's wondering, like, man, did Abraham hear correctly? God said he was going to bless us. But that was years ago now, and we're just out here camping in the desert. No kids. We got no kids. We got no land. Think about that. And when I think about us, and I think about the promises that God has made to us as his people to care for us, to bless us, to fill us with his spirit of power. We have this desire. We want things to be immediate. We want there to be no lag time between the promise that God makes and the realization or the fulfillment of that promise. But for Abraham... And I think for the people of God throughout history, the time that elapses between when God makes a promise to you and the fulfillment of that promise is actually where our faith is given the opportunity to grow and to flourish. The time elapsed between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise is your opportunity to grow in faith. So the unanswered prayers that you have and the promises that have gone unfulfilled in your life, I believe, is how God wants to cultivate genuine faith in your heart. And he is good to do that. He's really good to do that. So when everyone's starting to wonder, man, we've all been following this Abraham guy, but man, did he hear God or what? Genesis chapter 15, God appears to him again, and then this is what happens. It says he, uh, God appears to him and, and took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's the quote that Paul pulled for Galatians chapter 3. So God isn't backing away from his promise. Oh, yeah, Abraham heard me wrong there. He doubles down on his promise. He says, you didn't hear me wrong. My, my, my promise takes time. 
A promise takes time, but I'm the one who made the stars. And if I'm capable of making the stars, then I'm also capable of performing the miracle that I've promised for you. And he's, again, just calling Abraham deeper into faith. And I believe that's exactly what God is doing with us. And then in, there's those words, Abraham's response. He, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, so how this functions in the letter to the Galatians, um, he's, uh, Paul is essentially tagging that verse or hyperlinking that verse. And he says that when Abraham trusted God, he was justified. We've talked about this phrase or this term a lot over this series. He was justified or made right, or maybe if you prefer, he's saved. He becomes a part of God's family and he's, he's made that decision by faith. Now the significance for like the argument that he's making in the Galatian letter is that he hadn't actually done any Jewish Torah things when he was credited righteousness. So in other words, he, no laws had been given. He hadn't been following the Ten Commandments. He hadn't learned what the Sabbath was. He wasn't circumcised or eating kosher or anything like that. But the Bible says that even before he obeyed any of the Jewish laws, he was right with God. So in other words, in the argument of the letter, Abraham is saved by faith, not by works of the law. And so is anyone who trusts in Jesus. We're saved not by our works, but based on our faith in him. Again, though, I want to look at the quality and the persistence of Abraham's faith. Look at um, what Romans chapter 4 says, which is uh, very parallel uh, to Galatians chapter 3. This is what it says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it been said to him, so shall your offspring be. In other words, because Abraham dared to believe God when it didn't make sense, he was actually able to realize the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. And he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. I love this. So essentially what Romans is saying is that in the face of, of an unfulfilled promise, that it feels uncertain. It's been a hundred years now, and Abraham doesn't have any sons. Biologically speaking, he has no shot of having any children. And yet, he is fully persuaded that if God who made the stars made him a promise that he was going to become the father of a great nation and that all of the nations would be blessed through his line, then God was going to figure out a way to fulfill that promise to him because he's fully persuaded that what God was promising he was able to perform. That speaks to the quality of his faith. And so I just want to, before we're done here, just give you a couple of patterns that we see in Abraham's faith that um, sort of follows the people of faith, um, the people of Abraham um, in the story of the Bible. The first one is that Abraham trusts in God even when it doesn't make sense. Trusts in God even when it doesn't make sense. Um, it's interesting, my, uh, my grandfather, my dad's side, my dad's dad is this really, or he's no longer with us, but he was this wise sage. He's a man of few words. He was super smart, and, uh, but just kind of like, uh, like, a, like a man of the mountains as well. He was always outdoors and stuff like that. And he was just like this really, really interesting guy, and I miss him a ton. I remember when we were kids, we were all camping out at Crater Lake, and it was the middle of August. And I was probably like seven or eight years old or something like that. And we decided to take like the Crater Lake tour where they had a couple of different 
rangers who were like explaining to us like the ecology of the region and how the lake was formed and all of this stuff. And we were on this tour. And I'll remember, because my grandpa was you know, advanced in years, he's an old guy, and he was uh, super, like I said, he was wise and smart and all of that. He, um, he looked at the rangers and, he's, and he kind of looked up at the sky and he said, it looks like snow tomorrow, huh? And the, and the rangers were like, um, no, it's the middle of August. We never get snow up here in the middle of August. There's just like no possible way. And the weather, this was before the weather app, but there, were, uh, there, there was like uh, no snow or anything like that in the forecast. It was supposed to be warm and all of that. No one, no one thought. So they literally, I remember them sort of kind of embarrassing him in front of the group like, no, old man, you're crazy for thinking that there'd be snow. It's August. It's like 65 degrees outside right now or whatever. And uh, yet my, my grandpa was unfazed by that. He was just like, okay, well, whatever. We woke up the next morning to like five inches of snow on the ground. No joke. And I remember we like saw those rangers a little bit later in the day, and they're like, how did this dude, how did you know about this, this uh, that there was actually going to be snow? And again, it, it sounded crazy the day before, but there was something in the weather pattern that because my grandpa had seen a ton of winters and had seen a ton of snow in his lifetime, he somehow was able to see that pattern that no one else was able to see. And he was able to predict with real certainty about the weather that was happening the following morning. And I think that that is similar to the faith of Abraham in that everyone around him, if they heard him tell the story, was like, dude, you're a hundred. I can understand where you kind of like have wanted kids your whole life, but you're delusional. Your dream, this promise that you're holding on to, isn't based in reality. We never get snow in August up here. But he was able to see, Abraham was able to see something that no one else was able to see. And it was because he had confidence in the word of God that was spoken over him. And he was persuaded, he believed God, even though it did not make sense, he believed God's word over the impressions and the wisdom of others. And that was the kind of, that is the first sort of uh, hallmark, if you will, or characteristic of the faith of Abraham. In other words, we are being called into that same kind of faith that we see things that others are not able to see, but because we have anchored ourselves in the truth of God and in the promise of God and the hope of Jesus' return, that we go, you know what, I trust and I believe Jesus, and I take him at his word even when it doesn't make sense. Now, um, I know how we hear this because we like to think of ourselves as being fairly sophisticated and like we have a really refined, nuanced worldview. And so saying like, hey, trusting in God when it doesn't make sense, it feels like a kind of a foolish statement. It's what critics of the faith would probably kind of look at us and go, yeah, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is why the Christians are delusional and full of whatever. Um, but uh, but they're, they're, they just don't have a very sophisticated worldview. And I understand and I feel that tension in myself. But... I actually believe that Abraham is, is not foolish or reckless. He's actually wise for trusting in the word of God over the, the wisdom of others. I think that um, this kind of Abrahamic faith is not foolish because it's actually recognizing. It's not unsophisticated because it's actually recognizing that life is way too complex for me to figure out on my own. It's way too unpredictable. There are way too many variables outside of my control. When we uh, started 2020, we had all kinds of ambitions about what the, what the year was gonna look like, but because of variables outside of our control, our year and our life looked completely different than what we were anticipating. And so for as sophisticated and as well thought through and as nuanced and refined our life goals are and our life plan is and our outlook on life and our perspective and all of that, the reality is that my perspective is limited, finite, flawed at best. Even the smartest among us, even the most well-read among us, 
there are variables outside of our control. And so when we decide to trust in God, when it doesn't make sense, it's not an unsophisticated way of looking at life. It's actually saying, you know what, this is the safest, most meaningful way for me to move through my life and to make decisions is walking by faith that in what God has spoken over me and what God's promise is. I, I trust, I believe that what he says in his word is true, and so I'm going to walk by faith in that. Not actually trusting in my ability to figure life out. Not actually putting my hope in my life plan, but putting my hope in the, the truth and the promise of God. Trusting God, putting faith in him when it doesn't make sense. That's a first pattern, if you will, of, of Abrahamic faith. The second one is that a faith that leads you to take action. Again, faith is not a passive thing. Faith is an active thing. By the way, at the end, I'm going to just show you all of these points so that you can uh, take a picture of them or write them down in your notes or whatever. But uh, faith is not passive, it's active. So uh, I remember when we were getting ready to plant the church, uh, I only know a, a handful, a small handful of you at the time. And when we were getting ready to plant the church, um, we had kind of landed in, as far as the pastor's concerned, a fairly safe kind of uh, Role. I was uh, an associate pastor, and I was um, teaching in big church a couple times a month, and I was leading the youth group and the kids' church and the college group and all of these things, and I kind of worked my way into a fairly safe position where I had benefits and uh, a respectable salary, and we had just kind of like got our credit together, and we bought this house, and we were living in this house that, that we felt like was an answer to prayer. And then right as we sort of got settled into that, we started to sense God calling us on to plant a church here on the west side of Bend. And at the time, we didn't have any assurances that any of you would uh, be into it. <laughs> at the time, it was just a wild idea in our hearts and our heads, and we couldn't shake it. And so we would drive to Bend. We were living in Sisters at the time. We'd drive into Bend. And we just walked the streets of Bend, and my wife and I, and we would just pray, God, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to be a part of something like this or whatever? And we just, we didn't know, but we knew we were being stirred. We knew we were being stirred by God to, to plant a church one day. And um, it was after we made that commitment, and after we had um, told our, my current employer and all of our families that we were actually going to be planting the church, that's when we began to see the answers to prayer. I quit my stable job, we sold our house, pulled out the equity, put it into savings, started living off of it. We were basically not really sure where our next paycheck was going to come from. And then we had this amazing church in the Portland area that came behind us to support us and then we had some really important people in our life basically just say, hey, listen, we want to support you in every way imaginable. We're going to find you a place to live. We're going to put you up. We're going to make sure that you have everything that you need. And it was beautiful. Now I'm living in this incredible uh, reward of our faithfulness to God. And trust me, this isn't me saying that we've got it all worked out or we're perfect. We're certainly not. We're far from it. But we felt like God was asking us to be faithful to him and to trust him with what he was calling us to do before we had a bunch of assurances that it was all going to work out. And once we stepped into faith, we saw God provide in miraculous ways that I still to this day cannot explain to you. And it's often the case that the promise is fulfilled after the faith step. After we say, okay, God, I will trust you, that's when we experience the blessing. That's when we experience the blessing. It's not a passive thing. You're being called into an act of faith. Number three, faith in God's promise and not your ability. That's another pattern of Abraham's faith that follows uh, the people of faith in the Bible. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves. Their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. I love that line. I love that scripture. Again, I genuinely believe that the principal temptation of the enemy 
is for you to trust yourself. Figure it out on your own. Rely on your intellect. Trust your gut. That's what culture tells you. That's what the enemy tells us to do. But the reality of the scriptures and the reality of true biblical faith is to actually not rely on ourselves, not trust in ourselves, but to trust in God and to trust in his promise to us. There's so much that I could say on that, but we're, we're, gonna, we're running out of time. My job, though, is to call you deeper into faith. And that includes maybe you crucifying your life plan. You know what I mean by that? By actually saying, God, all of my agendas, all of the things that I've set out to do, I surrender them to you. I submit them to you. And I offer them up on the altar of my faith in you and my worship to you. One of my uh, friends and, and mentors, pastors a church in Portland called Westside, um, the church that planted us. And he's, he's famous for saying, and he says it all the time, he says, I always tell my family that our principal prayer is we say to God, anywhere, anytime, any cost. Anywhere, anytime, any cost. And almost every time I see him now, that's what he said. Yeah, we're just, that's what we're doing. Our family is praying together anywhere, anytime, any cost. That's what I mean. His life plan has been surrendered to the Lord. And I think that's God's invitation for us as well. Certainly my life doesn't look anything like I thought it would when I set out into pastoral ministry at age 20. But it's far better. And it's, far, it's incredible to see what God has done through our little broken story. So that's number three. Number four, second to last, a pattern of Abraham's faith is that it's persistent in uncertainty. Persistent in uncertainty. We need a faith that's stronger than our doubts. That's what we need, a faith that's stronger than our doubts. And so how many times in those 25 years do you think that Abraham was questioning and was wondering about when God was going to fulfill his promise. And I, because I'm pastoring here, I know a lot of your life stories and I know that there are many of those, there are times in life where you have wrestled and you have questioned and you have doubted whether or not God's love is real for you or whether his promise is true. And I say that with zero judgment or wanting to put any shame on you. But our dream here at Riverbend is that we would be the kinds of people who have that resilient perspective to see God at work and to hope in God's promise persistently through the ups and downs of life. And my heart for you, my hope for you, my dream for you is that when there is a promise that has gone unfulfilled, that you would actually see that time that elapsed time between the promise and you receiving it, that you would actually see it as an opportunity or an, a, 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 a way that God is cultivating deeper faith in you. I was just, um, right before we started, I, I just had this, this passing thought, and so I wrote it down really quickly in our notes. I was just thinking that I don't want to get to the end of my life and basically have to say that I played it safe. That I relied mostly on myself and what I was able to reason through my way through life. I don't wanna to have to say that I did what made sense and my life had this really predictable outcome or whatever. I, I wanna be able to look back on my life and I think you probably do too, to say, look at what God did. Look at how God was at work in our story. And there were key moments and there were key points in life where we trusted him rather than relying on our own understanding. And look what God did with that. And I genuinely believe that we will, don't want to get to the end of life regretting what we didn't say yes to. 
But we want to make it to the end and say, I, I, I put it all out there. I lived every day for the kingdom of God, and I lived by faith in God. The righteous will live by faith. Um, Luke chapter 1, um, the angel appears to Mary, and it's another opportunity to trust God when it doesn't make sense. And uh, he says, you're going to have a baby, and she says, how's that going to work? I'm a virgin. It says that she trusted him. But she trusted him because the angel said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Sure, like it's impossible for you to have a kid if you're a virgin. Except in this case, because nothing is impossible with God and God is the one who's saying this will happen. Do you believe? Do you trust? That is the, the kind of faith that the Lord is calling us into, that deep trust. And finally, and then we're done, um, the pattern of Abrahamic faith is the, pattern, uh, is the faith that does righteousness and justice. It does righteousness and justice. So Abraham lives the ethics of the kingdom of God by faith. He's worshiping Yahweh. He's, uh, he's worshiping Yahweh in a world where they were worshiping other gods. And he was there worshiping Yahweh. He's caring for the poor. He's caring for the marginalized. He's living God's ethics before the promise is fulfilled. That is an, ex- he's, he's doing in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible what's called sadikat and mishpat, righteousness and justice. And at many turns, you see Abraham walking by faith and doing what is right and just. And he's doing that before the promise has been fulfilled to him. And that's the invitation that God has given to us as well, to live the ethics of the kingdom of God by faith. So um, if you go back to Galatians chapter 3, where we started today, he says that the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and me, by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All of the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The scripture describes us as being the, um, uh, describes Abraham being the father of our faith. We are a part of the same family. Hebrews uh, chapters 11 and 12 talks about the hall of faith or the, 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 the people who followed in Abraham's footsteps who walked and lived by faith. And anyone who trusts in Jesus and anyone has this kind of faith is, b- belongs in the, the, the family of God and in the family of Abraham. So the, the simple invitation to you today is to just live into the faith of Abraham. It's time for you and I to put our trust in him. So here, here's the invitation, five things. Number one, trust in God's promise, even when it doesn't make sense. Faith that leads you to take action. Faith in God's promise, not your ability or your intellect or your skill. Faith that's persistent in uncertainty. And faith that does righteousness and justice. This is the faith that the Lord is inviting you into. And I genuinely believe now more than ever that if we follow in this pattern of Abrahamic faith, we will truly be blessed. Not only will we be blessed, but we will be blessed in order to be a blessing to our neighbors. And our world needs that. Our world needs you to become a healing, peaceful presence here. And so this is your opportunity. This is your invitation from God to become this kind of person. So will you please stand with me and let's pray together. Danny's gonna come and lead us. This is just um, our time to respond to the word of God. So I just wanna encourage you to open up your hands to clear your, um, your mind if you're distracted or tired or just been thinking about a hundred things or whatever, now's the time to just come back to center and say yes to him. God, we, we just wanna say thank you.
that there was nothing that we did in order to earn our keep in your family. There was no law that I followed, no rule that I executed perfectly. It was just your love and your grace. Now that I've trusted in you, now that I place my faith in you, I'm made right, justified, forgiven. Evil and, 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 and sin doesn't have a hold on me anymore. I'm not enslaved to it. And I belong in your family. This is who you are now because of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you to notice where your faith is at today. Before we started this gathering, we just had this really strong sense that God wanted to just break up the hard soil of unbelief and doubt in our hearts. And he wants to cultivate faith in us. So I just want to encourage you to to just say yes to that and allow God to begin that work in your heart right now. And as you do, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. God, we came in here today believing, but we also have unbelief and doubt. And so God, I just pray in your name, Jesus, that you would empower us trust you, to take you at your word, to follow you, to hope in your promise. This is what we long for, God. And I pray for everyone here. I pray that you would begin to cultivate that faith in us now. We want to be found as those people like Abraham. When it all counted, we believed and we trusted. Not in our life plan, our ability to figure things out on our own, but we trusted in you. So God, we respond in song, we respond in our worship, we respond by coming to the table of communion. We respond in prayer. And I I just want to encourage you as an expression of your faith, will you sing aloud to God will you open your mouth and will you praise him will you agree with the scripture will you agree with the promise of God and will you join the song of the angels we sing in hope we sing in faith that God's promise is true and then during the next song we're also just going to be coming forward to the the table of communion we're going to take the bread and the cup together as an act of faith saying, yes, we trust that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross saves us. We trust that it makes us right. So Jesus, we just, again, profess our love to you. We thank you so much for how you've come near to us in the person of Jesus. We pray that as we respond that you would be glorified and honored. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.